Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 45. And if you're wondering what pastors say to one another as they pass from pulpit to the pew, we're getting straight whose water is witches. Psalm 45, hear the word of God. To the choir master, according to lilies, the mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do ask that your blessing might be upon us as we hear this wedding song of love. And may our hearts warm to the good word of God. And may our lives be touched and changed even by your Holy Spirit through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just to reassure you, uh, 
Every veteran pastor knows that on a potluck evening, you must write at the top of every page of your sermon, meal, meal, meal. So do not despair. I love everybody. And I am happy with everything. Those were the words my father gave me upon the announcement of my engagement. He said, son, you just keep repeating those words. I love everybody, and I'm happy with everything, and it's all going to work out fine. (laughs) You know, Shirley and I have known each other since fourth grade. Uh, We've made goo eyes at each other ever since just before our senior year in high school. Graduation was good. I was valedictorian. That made it really nice. But, you know, wedding, now the wedding was even better. All right, we had to wait a few years. My parents forbid me to get married until I had my first sheepskin, as my father put it. So Shirley and I graduated on one day, and we were married uh, uh, the next week. What you have before you this evening in Psalm 45 is a wedding song, a special composition, doubtless upon the occasion of the wedding of the king. It's by the the sons of Korah. They're they're doubtless writing this for David at some point in his life. But yet they're not writing it about David per se. They are under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, David's life is not personal and private. He is a public man. He is the king. And he is the prophet king. And he is the man after God's own heart. And he is the one who more clearly than any of the patriarchs that had come before points to, lights the way, and informs our minds and hearts and lives about the coming divine Messiah, His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let's gather around and listen to the psalmist. Let's have visions of royal weddings in our minds as we hear what God is saying to His church, that King Jesus is coming. King Jesus is coming for his bride. Well, the first point the psalmist tells us is that the king is coming. King Jesus is coming. He indeed comes with the blessing of God. The psalm begins that way. We, we learn that, that this king comes with God's blessing upon him. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Here the psalmist is describing the king as one who is blessed on the outside and on the inside. He's blessed on the outside in that he is the most handsome of all the sons of men. Now, that's a fairly high compliment. It's that he is one that every head would turn to see. He is the one that every eye would brighten just a little to recognize. It's not just that his outward form is comely. There's something about him that just glows through his eyes, through his smile. It is a delight to be around him. What glory is seen The blessing of God, even as you look on the outward appearance of this king, this man. But he's also blessed on the inside. God has 
poured grace upon his lips. Jesus tells us that what comes out of a man tells us much about what is in a man. And so this one speaks with great graciousness. And so he is a blessing to his people from the inside out. But make no mistake about it. He's not just some pretty face on GQ magazine. He is one who comes in power and strength to rule in the realm. Verse 3 tells us, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. I can remember in Edinburgh when uh, Reed and I went to see the royal family. They were going down Princess Street in their carriage. There was quite a crowd. And, and I, got a little, I got a little glimpse of the queen and of uh, oh, Prince Charles. Uh, there was great fanfare associated with their visit. Uh, the special royal flags were flying. Uh, all the press was abuzz. Uh, everyone in the town wanted to catch a glimpse. I had Reed on my shoulders so that he could see and see well the royal family. When Prince Charles got out of, uh, out of the carriage, you see he was dressed in full, uh, full adornment, which included a ceremonial sword by his side so that everyone would recognize that one day he would be the king. But here, the one who is wearing the king is not, uh, well, not merely a victor in chess or in risk. Here is one who has slain his thousands, his tens of thousands. One who is mighty and whose arm is strong in battle. It's not just ceremony and pomp which electrify our minds as we see David. No, he is the one who is the victorious king, according, according to verse 4. And who want, one who comes in the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, and whose right arm is able to teach of how to do great and glorious deeds. He has arrows. He has arrows in his quiver, in his army that are sharp and are able to pierce through armor and slay the wicked. And he comes not just as any king, but he comes representing, symbolizing, pointing to and foreshadowing the divine king of his own line to come. Verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What language? We could be forgiven for just a moment of thinking that the, pan, the camera has panned from the carriage and from the entourage up towards the clouds to give thanks to God for this wonderful war. war royal wedding, which is unfolding before us. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Maybe this is kind of an aside statement or exclamation, uh, doxologically praising God, thanking Him for the glorious and wonderful King that is before them. But it's not just an aside, because the language goes on to say, your King, your scepter, your righteousness, your hatred of wickedness, 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all others. Here is a, is a symbolism thrust before us of David on the one hand, yet David's greater son that we are to clearly see. This psalm is messianic. David is the occasion for its writing. And so much of the inspiration runs through this particular historical event. But the real substance of the psalm, the real purpose of the psalm, the real object of every statement which is made is Jesus Christ our Lord. He has an eternal throne. It's not just a couple of verses that are messianic. Verse 7 is tied to everything which follows. Christ here is seen as one who is anointed by His Holy Spirit for active obedience and for joyful righteousness in the life of His people. The King, the real King, is coming. And His bride in this passage is the church. You see, that's given to us up before the first verse in that little printed section that you need a magnifying glass to read. To the choir master, according to lilies, a maskal of the sons of Korah, a love song. This is his wedding song, his love song. Possibly sparked by meditation by the psalmist band upon the lilies of the field, which are shining something of the beauty and glory of God. Uh, the sons of Korah, we, we may hear that language and think of, well, of long-bearded men playing guitars and banjos in a country band. But they would have been uh, very sharp indeed in the day. Uh, they are playing and singing from their heart with a knowledge that the Davidic covenant is going to come to full fruition even from the one who is the true object of their writing and their singing. This is his wedding party. His wedding party. Verses 8 and 9 speak to us of that. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and owls, aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. All the set is ready. Lights, camera, action. Let's see the the grand splendor of what is being foreshadowed unfold. We think of the wedding of Prince Charles and Di or of William and Catherine. Oh, the the splendor, regal, the sounds of trumpets, the gathering of the crowd, everyone wanting to see and watch every move, every line. And so too with the wonderful bride the wonderful bride for which he is waited. Verse 11 says, And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, has he not labored to cleanse and purify? Has he not done great work and triumph in order to attire his people, his bride, the church, in the most glorious array? 
Has he not looked and longed for the day? Is this not part of the joy which is set before him? That he might even go to the cross and be nailed there for the forgiveness of our sins. Oh, it is a wonderful and glorious day. And any such great event of public renown deserves a little bit of preparation, does it not? Get ready for the wedding, the psalmist is telling us. And some advice is given to the bride. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Here the psalmist is giving us a little bit of marriage counseling before we meet our husband and head, Jesus Christ. Forget your people. Forget your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. We are to turn away. We are to turn away and forget our own people and even our own father's house. Here our Lord is teaching us by inspiration through his prophets of old that we must turn away from the world and the flesh and the devil indeed. For we must be arrayed in glorious splendor and be presented before him spotless as one washed and cleaned and shining as his bride. But there's more than that. We must turn away not only from bad things, but even from some fairly good things. We must turn away from things that are our delight and our obsession. We must sacrifice even things that charm us and are not necessarily all bad in themselves. We must not be late to the wedding. We must not be obsessed with the goodness in others, only the goodness in our husband as his bride. Oh, there's so much we must forget and so much we must remember. We must remember to bow down. We must remember to acknowledge that he is our life. He is our future and present and hope. We must serve him. We must obey him. We must find our life not in ourselves, but in Him and in Him alone. And we must rejoice. Oh, there will be great gifts to charm our hearts. But we must rejoice in Him. Is He not the one who is a fount of every blessing to us? All that have gathered, even, even the people and kings of Tyre, all the gifts that are brought from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, are they not to His honor and to His glory, even as we open them and enjoy them? Do you know the fruit of the Spirit? Has God in His providence given you blessings even now, hors d'oeuvres and foretastes of that great and glorious day yet to come? Do you not know His life? Do you not know your life in Him abundantly even now as you find your joy and satisfaction in Him? And the bride's dress is beautiful. There is an adorning which knocks us for six. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king. 
brilliant, shining beauty, interwoven with sparkling treasures that adorn the bride prepared for the King of glory forevermore. All those hard things you face, all those heartaches that you have suffered, do you not know that your Lord takes those rough and difficult, hard, grinding pieces of life and He touches them in His providence and in His grace and He transforms them into beautiful gems which cast a glorious and color-filled light back upon your garment and upon your King. All the tears that you have shed, do you not see that they become crystallized into testimonies of the goodness of God's grace and of His glorious love for His people? Interwoven in the garment the church shall wear on that great day are the testimonies and the reminders of lives lived in sacrificial love to Him. Oh God, cleans off each and every one, makes them pure, makes them shining, that He might get the glory even and especially through those difficult and hard things of our lives. And so now I ask you, what are you wearing? What are you wearing now, these days? Are you wearing to your own glory, triumphs of supposed righteousness, or are you saving up as a testimony of His love and grace, those acts and good works of God love and neighbor love, which give Him alone all the glory. Oh, the bride is lovely indeed. She is lovely with good work. She, she should be seen as such and they should be named as such. And so we must strive after that which is good and give Him all the glory in our lives. And there must be expectation which obsesses our every thought. And the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to remember, be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever. As the wedding, which is coming, rushing down through history towards us on that great day when our Lord comes again, we think of His coming and of what His coming will mean. Sons, princes, fame, Many gathered into the household of our God. Not just from our tongue and tribe and people, but from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. A gospel witness going forth, even now that we might on that day see fruit given back to Him in glory of His name. And so now we share the gospel And now we seek to live a Christ-like life. For the King is coming for His bride. And we must be ready. Let us pray.